Good morning. It is an honor and a privilege for my wife Jennifer and I to be with you all here today to worship God and to spend some time praising His name. To my uh, brothers and sisters, buenos dias, amis hermanos y hermanas. Jennifer and I have been privileged to work with Churches of Christ disaster relief effort for almost 12 years. We live in North Carolina and we cover the southeast area of the U.S. Our area of responsibility goes from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean, from Tennessee and North Carolina South. You can be imagining right now that many times when the Weather Channel puts up that map and shows where a hurricane or tornadoes are going to hit, we often respond they should just say it's going to our area because that seems to be the area that gets impacted so often. And as I contemplated the wonderful opportunity that we had today to talk with you a little bit about the work of Churches of Christ Disaster Relief, in the context of our worship to God, I wanted that message to be centered around God, not around the logistics of what we do, but about the privilege that we have as God's people to follow the commandment that Paul talked about in Galatians that was just read to you, where he says, therefore, as you have opportunity, do good to all men. Churches of Christ disaster relief effort has been in existence for over 30 years. As a result of the work of this and many other congregations, We've distributed over $160 million worth of supplies exclusively through congregations of the Lord's Church. The last time I was in your building was in May of 2010. Many of you were probably here. I saw you working feverishly as the floods that had struck in Middle Tennessee and were so devastating here in the immediate Metro Nashville area. Your building had been opened up and was a center of relief and comfort to thousands and thousands of people. And for that, I want to say the most heartfelt thank you. This past year in 2020, the area was also struck by devastating tornadoes. Again, your congregation was one of the congregations that opened your doors, opened your hearts. And I believe in doing so, you are fulfilling the direction that Paul gave to the Galatians as you therefore have opportunity to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. And so as I contemplated this morning, there were so many different opportunities that I could share with you, so many things that we could talk about. I could talk about 2010 in another location just slightly north and east of Nashville, in eastern Kentucky, one of the first places that Jennifer and I traveled when we started work with disaster relief was to Pikeville, Kentucky. If you've never been to eastern Kentucky or West Virginia, let me just give you a quick primer on the topography of that area. You think you have hills here in Middle Tennessee, and you've got some pretty good hills. But brethren, you ain't seen hills till you've gone to eastern Kentucky. And in Pikeville, Kentucky, the hills are, are dramatic. And, and just on a typical July afternoon, 
the afternoon thunderstorms that we become so accustomed to poured down and they delivered deadly floods in eastern Kentucky. Little Rabbit Creek, which was normally just a rambling little creek, rose up during the night. There were four deaths. It didn't make the news because it was a typical event that happens often. But the congregation in Pikeville reached out. They took truckload after truckload to help in this little community. And the little community was 12 miles from their building, and yet they were there helping, giving out supplies to people that had lost everything. They told me about an account of two young men whose grandmother lived in a mobile home down in the valley. And at 1 a.m., they got a call that the water was rising, and they rushed down to see and to take care of their grandmother. They got to the door into the little porch of her mobile home. The front door was open. They could see her inside just as the mobile home was ripped away. And they found her body four days later. We saw grown men that walked into the place where disaster relief had delivered supplies and the congregation was giving them out to the people in need and grown men were in tears because they received a pair of shoes. Because they'd left during the night in such a hurry, they had nothing left. Or we could talk about Pamlico County, North Carolina. Hard for you to believe here in Middle Tennessee, but in North Carolina we have quite the mission field. There are counties in North Carolina that do not have a single congregation of the Lord's Church. One of those is Pamlico County, North Carolina. You've heard of the Outer Banks. You may not have heard of the Inner Banks, where the great bays that are, come in off the Atlantic, there's an area called the Inner Banks. It's a very poor area. They have no congregations. But Hurricane Irene struck that area, and the church in New Bern reached out. They said, we're going to that county, and we're going to help them. Those people don't know about the Lord's church but they will when we get finished. In 2011, there was a devastating string of tornadoes. I'm sure you all remember it. It's the one that destroyed congregation in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But there were 33 locations that day that got hit by tornadoes. It started on a Wednesday afternoon in a little town in Mississippi, south of Tupelo, called Smithville, Mississippi. Smithville, the small town, had every building destroyed where a religious group met with the exception of the Lord's Church. And our brethren at the Smithful Church of Christ had an opportunity to demonstrate Galatians 6, 9, and 10 in a real way. Interesting, we sent supplies down there and I was talking with one of the deacons and he said that they have a video of a car hitting a water tower. That's the force. They said it was a Category F5 tornado that hit Smithville. One of the greatest testimonies to that work of that congregation, they had distributed supplies to the area and to the community, and a denominational preacher came in, and he said, where did those things come from? They said, well, it's from the Church of Christ. His response was, that's not possible. They don't do that kind of thing. They changed the perception of the Lord's church because they were out doing the work that Paul tells us to do. Reference was made earlier to Hurricane Katrina. We could talk about Hurricane Katrina for several days, but I can tell you that while we don't measure, we don't keep track. Congregations that 
disaster relief assisted after Katrina have reported over 300 baptisms and more than 1,500 restorations directly as a result of what they did following Hurricane Katrina. We could talk about the wildfires that have struck in Colorado, out in California, Oregon, Washington. We could talk about Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy that roared up the East Coast and hit New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I could tell you about a congregation on Long Island that has fewer than 50 people, but as a direct result of what they did following Superstorm Sandy, they set up 104 Bible studies in three months. There's so many things we could talk about. And yet what I've selected for this morning, for our time together, I want you to think about an area in upstate New York. I want you to think about a town named Watertown, New York, up near the Canadian border. And we're going to talk about the events around an ice storm that occurred in January of 1998. Now, my family is from West Tennessee, about two hours west of here in a little town called Paris. And I know when I lived in Paris, we'd get an ice storm. There'd be a lot of news and publicity about the ice storm that was coming. But a Tennessee ice storm is different than a New York ice storm. The Tennessee ice storm comes and we get some ice. We, well, we all run to the grocery. We, we get a little ice. The power goes out. Everything closes. We enjoy it. The next day it's up in the 60s. It's melted and we go back and everything is over. Not in upstate New York. Not in January of 1998. They had such a devastating ice storm that the infrastructure was destroyed. The power grid was ripped down. They said it would be months perhaps up to a year before people got their power restored. Think about that. Now, it's upstate New York. It's bitterly cold. They've lost all power. Living outside Watertown, New York, there's a 67-year-old woman. A 67-year-old woman who has never studied the Bible. She has never prayed to God. She had no religious teaching in her life. Now let me step out of the story for just a minute. I, like many of you, were blessed. I was raised in a Christian home. My late father was an elder in the Lord's church. My mother was a faithful Christian woman, elder's wife, teacher, involved in everything. From the day that I can remember we were involved in the work of the Lord. It's always been a part of my life. So when I hear about someone who lived 67 years and never had any religious exposure, it's hard for me to understand. She was desperate. She was freezing. She was starving. She had no expectation that she was going to live. In talking with her later, she revealed she wanted to pray, but she didn't know how. She said, I just started talking. I just started talking to what I thought was God. About three hours later, 
there was a knock on her door. It was from our brethren at the Watertown Church of Christ. They had a food box for her. A food box that many of you have helped pack, that you've helped distribute, and you know what it means. You know what's in there. She took the food box, and two days later, she responded in a way that I don't think any of us would have anticipated. You see, the very last thing when you pack that food box over on Allied Drive, the very last thing that goes in the top of that box is a New Testament. Tucked inside that New Testament is a handwritten note from a member of the Lord's church. Two days. Two days after this woman was starving, freezing, no expectation that she was going to live, she contacts the Watertown Church of Christ that has brought her that box. And her comments were very simple. I've been reading that little book. And after reading that little book, I need to do something. The brethren at the Watertown Church of Christ studied with her. They talked with her. That woman was baptized, became a faithful Christian, and when she died, she was a faithful Christian. All because of that little book. My question to us this morning, what did she read in that little book that was so compelling? Did she read about the life of Christ in the Gospels? Did she read about how He loved and had compassion for those who were physically and spiritually sick? Or did she read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before He was crucified? Or His death on Calvary? His triumphant resurrection? Did she turn over to Acts and did she read about the Lord's church? being established on the day of Pentecost? Did she read about the courage of the apostles as they taught in the face of a cruel world that rejected the truth? Did she read those many accounts in the book of Acts where people became Christians? You know, the ones in Jerusalem in Acts 2.38. Or the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 where he said, see, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? Or did she read about Lydia and her household in Acts chapter 16? Or a little later in Acts 16, did she read about the Philippian jailer where he took and washed their stripes after midnight? Did she read all those letters to the churches in all those locations that we read about so often? You know, the Roman letter, the church in Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica? Or did she turn to Timothy and read those books that the Apostle Paul wrote to the young preacher Timothy, encouraging him to preach the gospel without compromise? 
How about Hebrews? Did she turn to Hebrews and read that great book, especially chapter 11, the so-called Faith Hall of Fame? Did she see the strength of those who lived before us? Did she turn over to Revelation and read the beautiful words of the inspired Apostle John as he described how beautiful heaven would be? You know, the answer is we don't know what she read. What we do know is that on her own, without commentary, without any other aid, without any other assistance, any other tool, she picked up and read God's Word. And as a result of reading God's Word, she said, I need to talk with someone. After hearing the Word, she believed in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. She repented of sin in her life. She confessed that Jesus is the Son of God and she was baptized for the remission of her sins. This woman had no religious training and didn't even know how to pray. And she was added to the Lord's church and became a faithful Christian. She read the New Testament. No additional writings, revelations, creeds of man. And it occurs to me when I reflect on myself, on the church today, on our society, Brethren, it seems as though we may have forgotten or let it become distant to us the power of God's Word. And I'm asking the question today, well, who needs that little book today in 2021? Well, I'm going to suggest to you, first of all, that children need that little book. Children need that book. It's a foundation to build their faith upon. I can't tell you how many times my mother-in-law, who has taught cradle roll for many, many years, has told me the story of sometimes the very first words that little ones have is Bible, as they learn how important that book is. And see, that leads me to, to, to the fact that who needs that little book today? Parents need that book today. Parents, it's your responsibility to be spiritually strong, to teach your children, to train your children. In the Old Testament, they were told to write it on their foreheads. And the responsibility for God's Word belongs to parents. There's nothing more gratifying to me than to see families, as I saw this morning, coming in to worship God and to study God's Word, bringing their children with them. What a blessing it is for those children and to our congregations, for parents who bring their children and train them in the way they should go. Who needs that little book? Young people need that book. Young people need that book because it will challenge them to grow spiritually and to become the youth that will make a difference in the world. Who needs that little book? Young adults. 
it should bring every one of us to our knees. When we look at a book written by Brother Flavel Yakely a few years ago, the book's entitled, Why They Left. In it, it reveals that over the last 30 years, the age group 18 to 29, in this book, it states that four in 10 of our young people are no longer faithful. I've been told by those who study such things that if those numbers were updated to today, sadly, that number has increased to about six. About 60% of our young people in the age group 18 to 29 are no longer faithful. Brethren, why aren't we crying about this tremendous loss, about these souls that have left the first love? This is not the church of tomorrow, it's the church of today. And our prayers need to be for each and every one that has abandoned the path of God's Scripture. This is at a time where adults are deciding how they're going to live. They're going to make moral decisions. As couples, they're contemplating getting married and creating a home. They need that little book. In Cary, North Carolina, where Jennifer and I worship, our congregation has a group that is, they're not young people, but they're not seasoned citizens. They call themselves prime timers. I'd like to think I'm in a prime timer, but as you'll see in a minute, that's probably passed me by as well. I would say prime timers need that little book. They're in a position where each and every day of life is challenging. And that book is a path to guide our way through those challenges that we face in life. If your website is correct, you have a different name for our seasoned citizens. In Cary, we call them live wires. But I believe according to your website, that would be the 39ers. Who needs that little book? The 39ers need that book. Because here's a news flash. You may retire from your secular work, And you might slow down a little bit physically, but there is not a retirement age as a servant of the Lord. We were driving recently and saw a church sign. It said the church is a hospital for the spiritually sick, not a rest home for the saints. You know, one of the greatest tragedies when I look at how most congregations function today is that we fail to appreciate the wisdom, the knowledge, the talent, and the ability of seniors. They've been through this. They know what the challenges are. They know what the outcomes can be. I have seen congregations where they have been very innovative, one that I thought was tremendously innovative. They took all the members of the youth group And if it was here, they would match them up with the 39ers. And they shared back and forth. 
guess what? Both sides learned something. And it was an amazing opportunity for us to take advantage. The Scriptures tell us to learn from those that have experience. Learn from the older women. Learn from the older men. Who needs that little book? Our elders need that book. I don't think there's been a more challenging time in the history of the church or of the world than right now. Our elders are confronting postmodernism, the rejection of authority, digression from the Word of God, and in the past year and a half, our elders have been forced into making decisions that we could have never imagined. Brethren, we need to hold their hands up. We need to give them the love and support that they deserve, that God tells us to give to them. Because not only are they doing the work to help us as congregations, they're doing the work of the Lord, they're doing the work of the church, and they are going to give an answer for our souls. We need to be helping them, not being a hindrance to them. And they need God's Word as part of their mission. Who needs that little book? Well, congregations need that book. Congregations need it because that's the anchor that holds our faith fast. Brother Phil Sanders, who speaks on In Search of the Lord's Way, is quoted as saying, the healthiest churches I know teach the truth, love people, and work hard. Here's the guidebook. Who needs that little book? I believe our government leaders need that book. Romans chapter 13, we're supposed to pray for those that are in leadership positions. And boy, I think it's an understatement. They need that book. You see what it comes down to is you and I need that book. You and I. I understand that one of the themes that you all are working on this year is what's in your hand? What's in your hand? This is what should be in your hand. God's Word is what should be in your hand. God's Word is what it should be in your heart. We need to read, as the woman in Watertown, New York read, Jesus came to earth and lived as a man. He loved and cared for mankind, and He died for you and me so that we could live forever in heaven if we're faithful. She read about becoming a Christian about being immersed in water for remission of her sins. She read about Christians that fell short, that were restored to faithfulness when we've sinned. You see, that little book, it turns out, is the most beautiful and powerful connection that we have to God, our Heavenly Father. It's not a book of suggestions. It's our guidebook. It's our gospel. It's the good news of Jesus.
If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a passage that I would guess that most of you could recite by heart, but one that we should never forget. In writing to Timothy, the young preacher, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Brethren, let's not take for granted. We're told that this is powerful, more powerful than any sword. God's Word is able to do things in the hearts of men if they know about it. That's our opportunity. Every single time you do an act of goodness, whether it be through a food box, through disaster relief, whether it be visiting someone, whether it be extending a hand, anything that you do from an act of of care and concern in the name of the Lord, you're planting seed. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, and who gave the increase? God gave the increase. We don't have to count. We don't have to gather. Our instruction is to plant. Plant the seed. Plant the seed, brethren, by what's in your hand, by the Word of God. Plant the seed by how you live your life according to the Word of God. Make sure that God's Word is part of your life, and more importantly, part of your heart. This morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer, an opportunity for those to reflect on your condition with Jesus. Are you like the woman in Watertown, New York, that you've heard and read and studied God's Word and you know you need to do something? If you're not a Christian, we're begging and pleading of you to put Jesus on in the waters of baptism. If you're a Christian and you've fallen short, God knew that life would be a challenge. He provided an opportunity for us to come back to Him. Maybe the last year and a half, maybe the last six months, maybe life's been really, really hard for you. And you need the prayers of this congregation. Whatever you might need, I ask you to look at your heart, see what your needs are, and make your life right with God.